All right, you can have a seat. Have a seat, take your Bibles, go to James chapter 1. Chris already read that for us. Did I push my button? My button's on, I'll just keep talking. James chapter 1, and if you have a device with you this morning, maybe you're a guest with us, you don't have a Bible, but you definitely want to follow along with us, uh, I'm going to encourage you to take advantage of that little QR code right there. That'll bring you right to James chapter 1 in the Bible app. And we want to try to make it as easy as possible. We don't want anybody feeling like they're on the outside trying to figure out where in the world we are. James chapter 1. Let me give you some background before we jump into James uh, chapter 1. Jesus goes home and he begins to preach. And he's teaching and the people in his hometown are listening to him and suddenly it seems like one of them was like, wait, I know him. Isn't isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't, isn't, he, the, isn't he the one who um, grew up here? Don't his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and, and all of his sisters, don't they live here with us? So that, that first of all, I've got to deal with that because some of you are from a tradition that said that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin and, and never had any other children. But Scripture tells us clearly that actually, she had a number of children. We know of at least four sons, and it says sisters, plural, so there had to be at least two daughters. So Jesus grew up in a home with four stepbrothers and two stepsisters. One of them is named James. Can you imagine growing up in the same house, your big brother being God? I mean... It gets a little tense. It tells us in Mark chapter 3 that uh, the family thought that Jesus had lost his mind. It says this, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's, he's out of his mind. I mean, how else do you respond when your big brother is claiming to be God? Right? Now, now, if your big brother is claiming to be God, how is he going to prove to you that he actually is God? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul walks through this glorious passage and says this, I passed on to you what is most important. I also received that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And here we go. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12 apostles, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive. So understand what he's saying here. He's saying, look, now most of them are still alive. So if you need, need proof, you go talk to those 500 brothers and sisters that got to see the resurrected Jesus Christ. They'll be your eyewitnesses, okay? So, so most of them are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And then, how do you suddenly go from... I don't believe my big brother is the son of God, too. I am totally convinced my brother is the son of God. Uh, your brother raises from the dead after three days and says, Sup, homie. And everything changed in that moment. Before I go any further, so there's some of you here this morning who have started skeptical, doubtful, even denying that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to save you from your sins. And, and you're still progressing through that, trying to understand it, trying to wrap your he head around it. Now, James had the same thing happen. It ended great. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but, but maybe that's where you're at this morning. And, and so 
you're still trying to figure it all out. <clears throat> hey, guess what? That's why you're here this morning. God has you here for that purpose, to continue to understand who it is that Jesus is. So you may have some questions, and you may, on top of that, after we go through the day and talk about the topic at hand in James chapter 1, you may just need to talk to somebody and pray with somebody or, or get some questions answered. As soon as our service is done, our prayer team will be available back in that corner, and so they will be there waiting for you. So I want to invite you to that even now. So now, now James goes from a, a skeptic to an eyewitness of the risen Jesus Christ. And then he becomes the pastor of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. And he becomes that, he stays that pastor for more than 20 years. If you read through um, the book of Galatians, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul is kind of unpacking a little bit of his testimony. And he says, before I could go into the ministry, I had to sit down with some of the, the OG apostles. Like the, these people were the originals. These were the ones who really walked with Jesus. So I need to spend time with them and listen to them and talk with them. And one of the people he mentions is, I needed to make sure that I went and spent time with James. Galatians chapter 2, Paul says James is one of the pillars of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 15, you get this intramural but really important argument that's happening in the early church. And they're actually arguing, can non-Jews be Christians? And they have this debate and this conversation and this argument. And then James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, speaks with authority and leadership and says, no, 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 salvation is for all. And aren't you grateful? Now, here's a weird question just on the aside. What if they're like, nope, only Jews? Do you think God would have been like, oh, rats? No, I think we're pretty safe, so I'm glad they got on board with God's, God's plan. In our immediate context here, James has been working through a season of leadership that is incredibly difficult with the church in Jerusalem. There's poverty among the people. Acts chapter 2 describes the, this new church, this first church of Jerusalem, as, as being a group of believers who, who sell their possessions and give what they make, the proceeds of those sales, to give to those who are in greatest need. But here's the problem. That works for a little while, but then you suddenly run out of stuff to sell. Because the poverty went on for days and weeks and months, even, even years. And then it became even more complicated by an increasing famine. And then, then it gets even more dire when the persecution of the church ramps up. The persecution of the church becomes more regular and intense. The persecution of the church is happening. Your people are being carried away under the leadership of some guy named Saul, by the way. Which isn't that interesting that we'll hear a bit later what happens in the life of Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul. And as the pastor of that church, and, and I know, now you're like, well, I'm not a pastor, but, but I think you can relate to what he's going through. So put yourself in his position. You show up every week with your church, and every time the church gathered, there was a few more empty seats. And you notice it a little bit, but when you really take notice, it's when the people who make the comment, every time the doors are open, I'm in church. Suddenly, they're not there. And as the pastor, you can't blame them. You understand what's happening. It's gotten to the place now where as people gather, they begin to worship. And some of the religious elite of the day are coming in and dragging men and women out and persecuting them physically, legally. Another Sunday comes, more empty seats. 
till it gets to the place where we're here in, 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 in about the year 45 or 50 AD. Not 1945, 1950. We're talking 45, 50 AD. You're talking 15 to 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. James sits down and he writes a letter to you, <laughs> to his church family. He doesn't write about new theology. He doesn't unpack all these new things about Jesus that only Jesus' brother would know. The entire book is talking about real faith. How, how listen, you can say you have real faith, but now's your chance to show it, my friends. He says, greetings, and then he gets to work right here in verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. I mean, you want to get serious out of the gate, that's as serious as it gets. He says, we're going to talk about trials. So, so what are trials? Trials are troubles or difficulties, challenges, hardships. What, what areas in your life can you experience trials? You can experience trials in finances. Maybe the bank account isn't doing quite what it used to before COVID. Your health. Maybe you're experiencing some difficulties in your health. Maybe you're experiencing some difficulties in your relationships and there's some intensity. You love them, but things just aren't doing this right now. Maybe it's work. You're not exactly sure what career path you should pursue. You're not exactly sure if the one you're on is the right one right now. You've heard of layoffs are coming. Maybe, maybe the trial you're experiencing right now is spiritual. You're, you know, I just feel God is distant from me right now. I don't have that nearness that I, that I so desperately want and need. Maybe, maybe the trial is, 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 is mental. Maybe, maybe it's like, I just can't. There's so much going on right now. I just can't do this. Or emotional. It's just peaking all the time. This is, this is called, uh, 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 um, I just lost the word. Oh, well. It's called serious. <laughs> complex, that's the word. It's complex. Yeah, that was too difficult a word for me. We're all in trouble. <laughs> it's complex grief. It's complex difficulty. You can't, you don't have time to, oh good, I had it written in my notes, so that's always good. You didn't need to know that, but I thought I'd be honest. I can't even read. Um, <laughs> you, you don't have time to process there's so many different trials happening that it seems like you get hit with one and just when you're like, you're not even standing up, you're just, you're just straightening out again and the next one comes. That's called America today, by the way. <laughs> when you experience trials, not if, when, there is no teaching in the Bible that says Christians will avoid all trials. If somebody tells you that, they are lying to you and lining their pockets with the money you spend on their books. There is no scripture that says a Christian is unlike any other person who, if you know Jesus, then everything's going to be wonderful. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Look what they did to our Savior. What do you think they're going to do to you? When? When these trials come, what are you going to do? And what James is trying to tell his family, his loved ones, his 
these people that he has poured into and, and, and watched come to faith in, in Jesus Christ, the one he has served for so long. He wants them to know that real faith doesn't waste those trials. Real faith celebrates the opportunities that God gives us in trials. He says it right here, consider it a great joy. Consider it a great joy. This is not talking about an emotion or how we feel. This is a command about how we should think about trials. It's an accounting term. It's a financial approach. It says when you come across a trial, what I want you to do is take the time to, to intentionally and purposefully take that trial. You've got the two columns, credit and debit. Here's the trial. Every single one of us tends to go, boo, terrible. This is awful. I hate this. And he says, no, 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 what I want you to do is not be like, I love this trial. Nobody does that. That's denial. That's not joy. I'm going to take this trial and I'm going to go, okay, I don't get it. <laughs> this is for my good. This is a, a credit. He's saying we, we need to begin to think about what troubles can bring to us, what trials can, can, can come into our life and give us what benefit. We should consider the purpose of, of difficulties, but let me tell you really clearly, we are so guilty of, of trying to change even foundational ideas, foundational structures in order to feel better rather than to be better. Okay. So what we do is we remove obstacles so that nobody suffers. Pet peeve of mine. Every kid gets a trophy, even though we don't keep score. All your kids get a birthday gift, even though it's not their birthday. Oh, but we want happy kids. The problem is what you're training them is that difficulty never comes in their life. And so when they grow up and they get that job and they're working really hard, but somebody else gets the promotion, well, why didn't I get it? And it becomes this huge problem. And I realize how I sound right now. I am a granddad, so get off my lawn. I know that's what it sounds like. All right? <laughs> but... But the foundational structure of life, when we try to alter that so that everybody wins, that's how you blow up an engine. So, so if you're driving your car, <laughs> some of you, I'm not going to do a raise of hands. So you're driving your car and that orange check engine light comes on. I'm curious how many of us have that light. We're just not going to look at that. Right? When that sucker comes on there, we're like, that's going to be expensive. I don't even want to know. Right? And so, so we either, we do one of three things with that light. We either like literally, I just don't, I'm just pretending like it's not there. We're just going to keep on driving and see what happens. Or black tape right over the top of it works like a charm. I had a friend in college pull the fuse. I mean, that's all fine and good. The problem is when the car starts to sputter and then dies on the side of the road, and then we have the gall to go, I don't know what happened. We need to see trials. We need to see those check engine lights, not as things to be avoided. But see them as opportunities that God gives us. Because trials produce in us character. That's, that's what he says Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness or perseverance or patience. You see, what you have to do in these trials is you have to 
exercise the muscle needed to intentionally remain under the circumstance. When he talks about patience or endurance, he's not talking about the ones that are forced on you, like, we're going to sit on the tarmac for three hours, thank you for your patience. He's saying it's in the middle of those trials that we will be doggedly aggressive and we will militantly hold on to the truth that although stuff is hard in this moment, God's faithfulness is going to see me through. God knows better than I do. God loves me. God's plan for me is better than any plan I could possibly have for myself. So, so, so I can trust him. I can believe that when it all comes to the end, it's going to be worth it all. You know the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. I think the first thing that I want to make sure we don't miss there is the beginning of verse 4. And let endurance have its full effect. It doesn't happen by itself. You need to make the intentional choice to allow it to happen. Allow this endurance, this patience, this steadfastness, this perseverance to continue to grow into you until it leads you to the place where you have developed a mature and complete, lacking nothing type of character. That does not mean sinless. That means what you believe lines up with what you do. How you think lines up with how you act. That's godly character. That's integrity. And man, that takes time, takes practice, takes humility, and it takes a wisdom that we just don't have naturally. Which is why trials are beneficial for us. Because not only do those trials produce in us a character, the trials drive us to God for wisdom. In the middle of the trial, if you find yourself lacking, it says, look at this, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. If you find yourself lacking wisdom, not, not if you lack exactly how you should act on this step of the journey, and, and what stage of grief am I in, and what checklist should I follow, because the reality is when we boil it down to a checklist, we end up running to the checklist instead of running to God. If you lack wisdom, you are supposed to ask God, what, what can I learn from this? What is God trying to teach me? Give me this wisdom, God. Don't ask him for a reason. Asking for a reason is making yourself judge and jury. God, why am I going through this? You tell me, and I'll tell you if it's acceptable or not. The reality is we're supposed to ask for wisdom in this moment, asking, what can I learn? What can I learn about you, God? Help me to remember truth in the middle of of all of this. And the beautiful thing about this is, is if, you, if you go to him, if you lack wisdom and you ask God, look at this, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, generously, abundantly, without reserve, ungrudgingly, without reproach, no blaming you, no reprimanding you, no mocking you, no insulting you, and without hesitation. So, 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 I, I will be honest, as a dad, there have been moments in my parental history, that I have known the right answer. I like to think it's because I'm a great dad that I allowed the child to flounder around a little bit while I held the great answer. 
And when said child finally realizes they need help and they come to me like, Dad, we need your help, I would love to say that I'm the mature dad that says, certainly, my child, they're there on your way. But instead, what I usually do is what Patrick does to y'all when you walk in here and you're a little short. He raises his hand up high to give you a high five. I like to do that to the kids. You want the answer? Well, it's about time you came to me. I'm the man. I've got the answers. If you would have asked me earlier, I could have saved you all this trouble. But no, you just need to go. God will not do that to you. God says, I, I'm going to give it to you, not only generously, not only am I going to give you a, a, a waterfall of it on top of you, but I'm not going to hold it just out of your reach. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to mock your foolishness. God is not cruel. God is not petty. God does not tease. God is not interested in making you sweat it out. He says, you, if, you, if you need wisdom, you ask of God and he will give it to you. The beautiful principle we find in scripture is the one who seeks God will always find God. The difficulty is, because of our sinfulness, no one seeks God on their own. They need the drawing of the Spirit to get them there. The one who seeks wisdom from God will be given wisdom from God. Not a difficult time, not hoops to jump through, you'll be given wisdom. But here's the part that always trips people up in this passage. Look at this, verse 5. And if you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives you all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Okay, so that seems unfair, doesn't it? I'm in the middle of this horrible trial. I, 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 I know I need wisdom from God. But, but, but my life is upside down right now. I can barely form the words to say, God, give me wisdom. I can barely get that out of my mouth. And, and here he's like, no, 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 do it without doubt or else I'm not going to listen. See, the problem is that's how that's been presented. When I was growing up, and, and I won't be very careful, the, the man who I listened to most in preaching, who was, I'd say, my pastor growing up, loved Jesus and did everything he possibly could to disciple us. But, but I think here... He really drove home on the no. You need to be confident in who Jesus is. That's really difficult. The man who knew that Jesus was the answer to healing his son said, I know you can. I know you can. I know you can. All right. Help my unbelief. Right? That's the spirit that God rewards. That's the spirit that God is looking for. What, what this word doubting. Don't, don't go. Don't ask doubting. Doubting, particularly in this context, is defined better this way. Let him ask in faith without divided loyalties. See, he, let me explain this. He, he's, God's the source of our wisdom. His ways are far better than ours. What James is saying is, as you look around, family, and as you realize the finances aren't there, you realize the food isn't there, you realize that, that you've got to keep looking over your shoulder because you could be arrested at any minute, dragged to the high council, and be, be tried because of your faith in Jesus Christ. As you're doing that, understand this. Don't approach any of those things with your own wisdom or with the world's wisdom. Rely on his wisdom. Because here's the problem. The world's wisdom may seem pretty smart at times, and the, 
The problem is at the end of it actually spells disaster for us if we pursue the world's wisdom, particularly in this area of trials. Let me explain. We, we live in such an advanced world, right? So um, who'd have thunk 50 years ago? Maybe it was 50 years ago. I don't know. Maybe 100 years ago. Who'd have thunk that if you had trouble seeing and had to wear glasses all the time, and 100 years ago, I mean, you're talking 1923, the glasses weren't like high-tech anymore where they could shrink the glass. So if you had a really heavy prescription, it was like your nose was squished. You had these giant Coke bottle glasses, right? Some of you know, don't you? <laughs> Me too. Um, I got contact lenses when I was 17 years old. I wore contact lenses until I was 42, 43, 43 years old. And then because of the incredible advancements in our world today, I went and let somebody peel my eyebrow back, burn my eye, say, don't blink. Oh, sure, okay, cool. Went home, slept for six hours, opened my eyes, and could see just fine. Now, it completely messed up my reading vision, but we won't talk about that. It doesn't fit the illustration, so stick with the illustration. <laughs> the advancement in our day is amazing. Science, I, I have my qualms with science, but science, some of the scientific discoveries of the day are amazing. Some of the things our doctors are able to do, ridiculous. Our schools are able to provide wisdom. Our government can do things sometimes that are really good. Here's the problem. All of those things overpromise and underdeliver. I mean, things are, are definitely better, but our, our medical and technological, technological advances haven't gotten us to the place where we have been able to change the death rate in America or in the world. It's still the exact same. Every person dies once. Nothing's changed. But, but I tell you what, your government or your school or your doctor doesn't make things good for you and you are expecting them to make good thing, things good for you. We shout, and then we sue. I'm not saying lawsuits are bad. I'm just saying if trials come upon us, and we're looking to the advancements of our culture today, the worldly wisdom of the day, to step in and fix everything, and then the trial comes, and we're like, somebody messed up somewhere. No. The wisdom of the word tells us is if trials come, we know the God who is in charge. We know that he loves us. We know that he knows all. We know that he's got a good plan for us. It's a completely different way to approach the trial than if you're pursuing worldly wisdom. If you're pursuing worldly wisdom, you understand that we live in an age that has, has found uh, 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 themselves in amnesia when it comes to sin. The, the common question of the day is why do bad things keep happening to good people? Good news. Read the Bible. I got your answer. Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, they've been searching for this answer for hundreds of years. I am proud to say I've got the answer. You ready? The answer is this. There are no good people. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll write my book next month. Um, <laughs> we are so out of touch. The way we treat other people, the, 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 way, the, the way we act towards God, and we're like, we deserve better. Do you? Prove it. We, we forget that we don't deserve anything good. And anything that we have 
from the hand of God, and it's a gift of grace. <laughs> we, we live in a world that forgets that there's anything other than today. So many Christians, and, and, and us, us, so many of us, and I'm guilty here, eternity. I am convinced there is an eternity, but man, I tell you what, there are seasons of my life where I'm living like this is it. <laughs> and here's the problem, if this is it, and somebody touches it, somebody messes with my money, somebody messes with, with my emotions, somebody messes with my happiness, and this is it, we're destroyed. We have absolutely no way to deal with real suffering. But James says, listen, don't, don't buy it. Don't buy the wisdom of the world. Go after the wisdom of God. He wants the best for you. He is not cruel. He is good. His character is faithful. He only wants to give you something better. And, and, and the problem is that, that sometimes we, we recognize that we are the dumb kid who likes to play in the mud puddle. Let me finish that story before you're like, you called my kid dumb. No, I didn't. Okay? We all love playing in mud puddles. But when dad shows up and like, hey, Billy, come on, man. Get in the car. We're going to the beach. We're going to the beach. And Billy's like, no, we're playing in the mud puddle. And dad's like, but I don't understand, Billy. It's the beach. It's the biggest puddle you've ever seen. Get in the car. And then finally, dad has to go over and physically remove him from said mud puddle to put him in the car and the whole time the kid is pitching a holy fit how dare you remove me from my mud puddle i was having so much fun in my mud puddle <laughs> trials are not punishments we're living for something other than jesus and what we're living for is ruining us. And God intervenes. That's not punishment. That's surgery. And we may kick and scream about how much we want to be in that puddle. But it's carrying us to the ocean. We, we, we need to be reminded of who our faith is in. God is so good and so gracious and so kind that nothing can be wasted in our lives. Look, 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 look with me at verse 9, just as I close here. Verse 9, let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. Can I tell you how good God is? God is so very good that a person can have nothing but God and still have it all. Still have a reason to boast. So no matter how ugly it is right now, there's still reason to celebrate the opportunity that God is giving you in trial. Look at verse 10. But let the rich boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. In fact, God is so incredibly good and faithful that a brother or sister who loses everything but God still has it all. We need to be reminded of who our faith is in. The one who wants to go to the beach. So you say you have faith. Are you seeing the trials in your life as opportunities to be celebrated? Would you pray with me?
God, I can't even for a moment pretend like this is an easy message. (laughs) And, And I know that there are people in this room who are going through trials that have not only shaken them, but are shaking them right now. I know there's hurt. I know there's anxiety. I know there's desperation. I know there's frustration. But I also know that there is a faithful God who loves his children. So Lord, I pray that each person who's sitting here, as they consider what it is you're doing in their life, would would make the intentional choice to slide that trial over into something worth celebrating. Not, well, not enjoying the trial, but enjoying the opportunity to be pushed to you for wisdom. May they find you. May they spend sweet time with you. And then, God, I pray that their worship would be sweeter than ever before. Because what they know is that they serve a God who knows them, loves them, and wants to take them to the beach. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. In his name I pray.